ESPN LA 710. Welcome to the experience. I'm LaFern Cusack here on ESPN LA 710. For more information, please log on to ESPNLA.com and go to the experience page or check me out on Twitter at LaFern Cusack. Today, we're speaking with CEO and founder of Rebos, Ross Ramin, who's also a radio host for VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to the show, Ross. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You started this company, Rebo's Treatment Center, in Los Angeles out of pure passion, love, and joy. Tell us about your background and how you got started. Since the age of about 16 or 17, I, you know, that's when I first got into drugs and alcohol in high school, like most kids do. And throughout the years, you know, the party kind of never stopped for me. Um, I just kept going. And when, when I was in my young, eh, young to mid-20s, uh, my family had done an intervention on me. I went away to treatment, um, which, you know, kind of a long story short, turned into eight treatments over the course of 10 years. Um, and my drug addiction went from just smoking weed, you know, in high school to alcohol to, you know, mushrooms. In college, it started turning into cocaine, which blossomed into more alcohol. And then towards the end of my my run, as they say, uh, cocaine turned into crack cocaine, um, just because I literally could not snort anything else up my nose. That is who, that's who I was. I'm basically a glorified ex-drug addict. Um, I, at my heyday, I was about 15 to $1,800 a day of crack cocaine. Um, what? Just, yeah, I was out of my mind. Um, there was, how I'm can a, you bo- how can your body tolerate that at, at I don't know. Not being- you know, it's a great question. And, you know, I think youth was the only thing that was on my side. I think I was, when I was at my worst, I was still snow skiing. I lived up in Lake Tahoe. Um, I actually moved to Lake Tahoe to get away. I grew up in Chicago. I moved to Lake Tahoe during, after one of my stints at treatment to basically get to the outdoors. I'm a huge outdoor junkie. Just love being outside. In the city of Chicago, I love it. It's my passion and it's my pride. Yes. During the wintertime, it is, you can go to a bar and that's about it. And there's not even enough snow going on there to where you can go up to, you know, to the, you know, to up to Wisconsin as most people from Chicago do and go snowmobiling and do that. The winters there are just really funky. So I wanted to go to a place that was like kind of an outdoor playground mecca all year round. And Lake Tahoe was that for me. And so when I moved there, I moved there as a sober guy. I'd just been through six treatments by the time I'd been there. And I was like, you know what? I need to go to a place that I can get a, find a decent job. I can kind of start over. I'll have two options where I can meet people. I can either go to an AA meeting or I can go to a bar to meet people. And so I was like, you know what? Two choices. I can pick the right one. I know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And... Mm-hmm. I just did the exact same thing that I had done every other time before. I was uh, terribly insecure, and I really honestly thought I needed an eight ball of cocaine in my pocket in order to meet girls, to meet guys, to meet anybody, to have a good time. I just did not, wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Um, Mm -hmm. That's really how it came down to be. Ross, were you familiar with addiction 
did it run in your family? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Addiction does run in my family like it does in most families. My dad was never a drunk. My brothers, and I have a brother and two sisters, they were never drunks or drug addicts. My mom, I mean, she literally would have a like a glass of white wine every single night with like three ice cubes in it, watered down. I mean, she had not a drinking problem. But my mom's parents, they were country club uh, people. They were drunk always. Um, you know, and my uncles on my dad's side, they were always just big alcoholic. From what I understand, I, I was the youngest by 16 years. So a lot of this information was told to me later on by my yes. by my brothers and my sisters. So I know it, it's in my family. It didn't mm-hmm. hit my immediate family, but I was very much kind of like the black sheep of the family, just very different. My brother was an athlete. My one sister was a valedictorian. My other sister had her own strengths in school. Um, and I didn't, I was not a good athlete and I was not a good student and I really didn't have much. So that is, this, this became my thing. This is what I became known for. You know, you go wherever that guy goes, there's going to be a good time. And that's, that's kind of what my gig was. And that's your good time. Uh, your good time, Ross, right? Yeah. Good time for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's well, what I was. So did you find, not not to like point blame at anyone or anything, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand like how you were raised to where you felt so insecure that, you know, you had had anxiety about meeting other people with, you know, all these, you, your brother's a star athlete and your sister's excelling. What type or did you experience a, a, a type of pressure to become someone in regards to your family? No, I didn't. And that's kind of the big thing. The bottom line is I sold myself out. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, that's really what it was. My family showed me nothing but love. Mm. And, you know, my dad died when I was young, when I was in sixth grade. And my mom, she did the best she could with, you know, raising, you know, a son. I was the youngest by 16 years. So all my brothers and sisters were graduating college when I was in kindergarten. Um, They had all moved on. And so it was just me and my mom. But no, there was nothing like that. My biggest thing was, is, you know, I got my butt kicked, as most kids do when they're little, by, you know, just, you know, on the (laughs) playground or what have you. And come high school, it was just like... I was like, I want to be with that crowd. They look like they're having the best time. There's the best looking girls and, you know, the quote unquote, the coolest guys. I just wanted to be in that group. And I remember, um, you know, we were all friends in eighth grade. And then once we moved to the big high school, everybody kind of went into their little cliques. And I was just kind of in this weird little awkward stage. And I just sold myself out. Um, I didn't, nobody like peer, like do this. You got to do it. There was no peer pressure. I just, I got no good excuse except for saying I sold myself out. I wanted to go with those guys and that's what I did. And it just, I remember doing drugs for the first time and it was just like, I just, it just felt right. It just felt right. I remember doing mushrooms for my first time in high school and it was like, I feel like I can act the way that I always wanted to act and people are going to accept me because uh, you know, he's just, he's one of us now, or I don't know, however right. you want to describe it, but that's how it was. It just, it, that's the common line for a lot of people. It just felt so right. The first time I had that drink, that first time I smoked that joint or whatever, you know, whatever that first was for whoever it is, it, that's just what it was for me. And it just kept going. And then I started getting popular and my phone started ringing and it's like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I just kept rolling. Went to college up in Wisconsin, became a first semester freshman in four years. Um, just wow. a total nightmare. And that's what it was. And then my flight just started, my, my life just started floundering. Um, that's the best way to put it. That's what my family so how, did an intervention on me. How did you get the drugs? It seemed like it was very accessible. 
it's high school. I mean, our, the high school that I went to, and your husband knows, you know, we went to rival high schools, but it's the drugs are everywhere. Oh. High school is just, that's just what it is in college. I mean, drugs, it's just, everybody knows. It's just drugs are everywhere. Now, most of the drugs that we were doing, you had to go, you know, into Chicago or, you know, where I, you know, by where I grew up was Evanston. You go into Evanston, you go into Chicago, you go stop at so-and-so's house. You know, you get a bag of weed, you get your mushrooms, you do whatever. It's how do you get liquor? You go, you know, you go to your parents' liquor cabinet. You, you know, you get somebody's big brother to go for you, that type of stuff. And how did you get the money? It's just people had jobs, what it is. I mean, you're not spending stupid money. And, you know, it wasn't, I mean, in high school, it was one thing. It's, you know, you, you have an allowance or you're, you know, or you have a job. I had a job, you know, and so that's. You just found it, right. Did. Yeah, you just, you have it. Once you get to college, I used to go to school and I used to sign up for classes. I would pay for the classes and then I would withdraw from the classes right before you, like right at the deadline. So you would get a full refund of the money. So my mom would sign a check. Yeah, this is just so jacked up. My mom would sign a check. I would withdraw from it. I had the smarts to change my address so that the checks would come to my college address and not my mom's address back in Chicago. And so I would just have like stupid money. Um, and that's what it was. It was just a great time. It was just, it was, a lie. You, it was just a bunch of, it was a BS lie. And when did you hit your bottom or they call it the rock bottom, right? Yeah. I don't know if I, you know, I, I've got my own opinion on what bottom is, but I, I mean, I understand what you're saying on it. That, I had a couple different bottoms, and every time that I thought I was at my bottom, I would either go into treatment or somebody would put me into treatment. Um, but the real bottom happened when I was in Lake Tahoe, um, and I I hit my bottom hard. I had gone to treatment seven times. I didn't know what was going on. I was I'm six two, and I'm you know normally I'm a, I'm six two, and I, I should be about two to two hundred and ten pounds. That's what I'm comfortable at. You know, I was six two at about one hundred and forty two, one hundred and forty five pounds, um, wow. just out of my mind. Spending three, five, up to twelve days, I think twelve or thirteen days, I stayed awake at one point, just out of my gourd, just crazy. So I don't know what when people say bottom. I think that I think it's a metaphor, but you can always go deeper. So it's like, what's bottom and because I used to Is try it? to do drugs at the end. Mm-hmm. People said, you got to get so sick of doing drugs, and that's when you're going to get sober. And I was just like, great. So I remember I remember going out buying $9,000 worth of cocaine and doing it. And, like, I'm going to be sick of it or I'm going to be dead by the time I'm done. And I remember being about, like, $6,000 into the $9,000 worth of cocaine and just wasn't even high. I was just, you know, there's another good French word for that. But I was just, F, you know, the F word up. Yeah. Um, I well, was just a mess. So- so you say that you weren't you weren't high. Is that because you had because you had been doing so much that your body was just like, oh, well, first I needed this amount, and now I need this amount. Pretty much, and being you know, getting high is a good time. When I used to, you know, I live out here in Los Angeles now. You know, a high is like when I used to have a motorcycle and I'd, you know, ride up PCH as the sun's setting, and or in the morning when the sun's coming, you know, coming up over the mountains. Um, you know, or when I go skiing up in up in the mountains here, it's just that's a high. There's a buzz to it. The adrenaline gets going when you work out. When you, you know, when you do something, that's a high, and you get highs from drugs, from alcohol. But after after a time, you're not getting a buzz. You're not getting a high. You are so 
you are just so messed up that you do enough drugs, you will hallucinate. If you drink enough, you don't, you're not like a fun drunk where you're just laughing and all this. You get angry. You get violent. I got drunks that urinate on themselves. I've got drunks that just literally sweat booze. I mean, you can just smell it. Wow. They get the shakes. They get the shivers. So, you know, a high, I always tell my clients, I go, a high is a good time. When was the last time you actually got high? I mean, think about that. And that was the big turning fact for me. It was like, I don't get high anymore. This isn't fun. I'm stuck in my house. It's not like I'm going out and enjoying, like, I mean, there's a side to Lake Tahoe that's a riot. The casinos and the clubs and the beautifulness. I don't even leave my house anymore. My, my shades are drawn. I am literally a shut-in. Mm-hmm. And that's not high. That's, you're doing drugs just to get by. I used to have to do drugs in the morning. I'd say just enough, and I'd leave it on my nightstand so I could get up in the morning, take a hit, of crack cocaine out of a glass pipe, and then that would give me enough energy, enough oomph to make my way to the bathroom so I could go to the bathroom first thing in the morning. Then it was, let's do it. And then we'd eat every Tuesday because you get two pizzas for free from Domino's. You know, you get, you order one, you get the second one for free. Um, You know, that's what it was. We were just, we were out of our minds. And it wasn't, it's just survival. Um, The party Mm -hmm. ended and I kept going. Why didn't the um, interventions that you said, what, how many times, six times? How come those, the previous times didn't work? Interventions worked. I went to treatment. The interventions worked. The treatments, they worked. But just like anything else, and this is a big, this is a huge thing that people need to understand. The intervention helped. I got on the plane. I got in that car. I went to that treatment center, whatever it is. I spent my time there. I, I did what it was. I, I did what the treatment center told me to do. I did what my family asked of me, followed the rules, didn't get kicked out. But it's just like anything else. It's just like weight loss. It's just like, you know, you're going to a hospital for cancer treatment, for liver disease. If you don't do exactly what they tell you to do, you will fail. So I always tell my clients, I'm like, you can't just come here and just like just do 99% of what we tell you. It's it won't work. That it's like it's kind of like cancer. If you went into a into the hospital and you you God forbid you had cancer and the doctor goes, "Well, great. We got 99% of it." You know, go, "Yay." <laughs> it's like well, great, that 1% is just that 1% cell is going to grow and it's going to multiply. And then you're at 5%, then you're at 10%, then you're at 20% of the cancer has returned. It's the same way. So I would always go into treatment. And and this is what the majority of people do. And a lot of this is the treatment centers need to be get, get better at how they tell people what needs to be done so that the people understand. And that we can get into that later. But I just... I just, I did what they told me to do in treatment. And then once it was done, I was done. It's kind of like going to the gym because you want to lose 20 pounds. You can just totally kill it. You got a personal trainer. You go into the gym and for an hour, two hours, whatever long your training session is, you just kill it. You're sweating your butt off. You know, you're doing what you need to do. But once you leave, you go to 31 Flavors. You know, mm-hmm. like once you walk out, right. you can go and shop at Whole Foods and spend $100 on a head of lettuce because it's the most organic thing on the planet <laughs> or this or that. But right. when, but if you stop on the way home from work at 31 Flavors, you're just going back. There's no right. – the, is the gym failing you? Is your trainer failing you? Whole Foods isn't right. failing you. Maybe they charge you too much for the head of lettuce. But you, <laughs> are you, but you know what I mean? It's, it's the same yeah. type of a thing. It's – 
we are so undisciplined once we're by ourselves. We as mm-hmm. a society are, and that is what needs to be taught to people. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, it's like piano lessons. you got to practice mm-hmm. when you're not there. It's school. It's like you can go to school and show up every day, but it doesn't mean you're going to get A's. you got to be disciplined. Yeah. you got to do the homework when you get home. It's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I believe it was last week I was listening to Michael Thompson talk about, you know, there was this uh, young athlete that was violating the – uh, drug rules for the NFL, and mm-hmm. they were talking about, well, how could this guy keep doing that? He's making a whole lot of money, and Bob Thompson's like, well, you know what? I knew a paycheck was coming to me. If my paycheck isn't going to be there, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do it. And there's just that little thing that is like when you're an addict, when when you have this disease, you you can't make accurate decisions, right? It's like, yeah, I know I'm not going to get paid my million-dollar contract, but I need this. When Lamar was going through his episodes, I so felt for him because you can tell you you just need help. You can't stop. No. When, When you see, like, these athletes, you know, going through this and every all their business is out in the news, to have that and to have everything in the news and then be an addict, I can't imagine the pressure. I mean, it's overwhelming for me to even think about that. So how do you help people like that? Well, athletes are a different Athletes are a different organism in themselves, just like firemen. When I work with firemen, they're different than police officers. Police officers are different than firemen or paramedics. Athletes are different than both of them. Mothers are different than husbands. You know, it's everybody is very, very different. And so just specifically about athletes, they, they are definitely a different nut to crack. And, these are drugs. I mean, most of the drugs that, that are out there, I mean, heroin is arguably the most addictive thing on the entire planet. They have been fighting wars over this yeah. for centuries, poppy fields, just centuries. They've been fighting wars over over drugs um, and cocaine. It doesn't make a diff- difference what it is. Whether you're an athlete or you're a mother or you're just a regular, you know, Joe on the street, Susie Q, doesn't matter. You're dealing with a highly addictive substance. And nowadays, it doesn't take a heck of a lot to, you know, alcohol is pretty much the only thing that has kind of stayed pretty much the same over the years. Weed is more um, addictive now. Cocaine is totally different than what it was in the 80s. I love that people think that weed is natural. It's, I mean, it's, it's, has anybody like seen what weed is now as opposed to what it was in the 80s or the 70s or anything like that? It's, it's not no organic what? by any stretch of the, the imagination. Well, it's all I mean, more addictive. Wh- why? I mean, they, they say, well, it's naturally grown. I don't. Naturally what, grown and what then all the stuff that they jack into, then they jack, whatever they shoot into the soil. I mean, it's like having super tomatoes in your backyard. It's like what fertilizer, what, what are you injecting into the soil, into the roots to produce, you know, these buds, these these plants? It's like growing super tomatoes in your backyard. It's, you know, it's, it's stuff. It's just not normal. So when you look at these athletes and 
what they're getting addicted to. Forget, let's take away the let's take away the the fact that they're athletes. Okay, the only part of the athlete you can keep is just the amount of money that they have. But they go to parties, they do this, they're getting stuff offered to them. So they're getting the most addictive substance on the planet, or besides cigarettes, offered to them. And then they do it, and these guys have never had any money before. A lot of them haven't. Um, right. And. They just haven't. So they're at these parties and all this is going on and the hooping and hollering and all this. They get addicted to a lifestyle. They get addicted to the girls, the guys, depending on what kind of athlete we're talking about here. And it all just kind of snowballs. And they're not even trying to get addicted to anything. They're just having a good time. They actually have money in their pocket. I have a friend of mine who used to be an old NFL football player. He did his, you know, he played for a Big Ten school you know, won the Rose Bowl the whole bit. He did his college interview on cardboard boxes in his living room. Um, you know, he didn't have anything. And then he went to the NFL, and he's like, he blew his mind out. And he's just like, you don't understand the amount of money that comes. And so uh, these people, they get so addicted to it. And they get addicted to not just the drugs, but the lifestyle and what it does. And then you've got all these people jumping at you for one thing or another, and it's all happy. And then all of a sudden you've got these cousins coming out of the woodwork and you name it. These drugs are, are total escape in the pressure. And it's they're They become beautiful. I mean, they become like a total oasis and then they bite you in the butt. Right. Ross, but some of the athletes, they get, you know, injuries and then they're prescribed these painkillers. And a lot of the athletes become addicted to these painkillers and cannot play without it. Yeah, and that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it doesn't make a difference whether it's an athlete or it's you or it's me or anything about it. The painkillers, you we need painkillers. I mean, out there. But I, I, I literally watched my friend last week. He was up skiing, and he broke his leg, literally, his fibula, just like wow. literally cracked in half. And he is a former drug addict, and he needed fentanyl. He needed a morphine oh. thing. I mean, the, I mean, the pain is just, I mean, these injuries are just horrible. The thing about it, though, is, is they are a Band-Aid, and people need to understand that. There's a time and there's a place for painkillers, but they, but they are not a long-term solution at all. And so the heroines of the world, that, so like the oxy, go ahead. The Oxycontin and all these, the Oxycontin, which is basically synthetic heroin. You know, heroin has been around for forever. They used to actually sell heroin in the back of a Sears Roebuck catalog. Um, you can look it up. It's pretty astounding. The whole rig, the needle, the 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 tie off, the the whole thing. You could buy it out of the Sears Roebuck catalog. They put them on this to get them off of it because it's a first aid thing. The pain's through the roof. They just blew their knee out. They just broke their leg, whatever it is. They need that just to calm them down, to get, like, get like everything back together. But then these are big-ticket items. These players, they need them to play. Right. And so then they play. They are, they are getting addicted to this stuff, not because they're like a regular drug addict like how I was, where I was doing like self-inflicting wounds. They're getting addicted oh to it because, A, they have to produce – um, and B, you know, so if they go out, I mean, they got to play, they got to play. So they'll do whatever it takes. So I deal with a lot of former, um, uh, athletes and they're coming out of the NFL hockey, hockey and NFL are the big ones that I, that I've dealt oh, with okay. in the past. And they are just whooped. I mean, at, when they're leaving, 
they're 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 whooped from getting their bodies just torched. But what they're really whooped from is these just the drugs that they were on, the painkillers. And it's a lot better nowadays than it was back in the 80s. You hear about the stories of the 80s in the NFL. Um, but that's where it's at now. Um, you know, this, these, they're not players. They're commodities. This is ESPN LA 710. I'm LaFern Cusack speaking with CEO and founder of Rebos, Ross Ramin. Now, Ross, you work with a lot of athletes and a lot of people, and you empower them. The way you work with people is, I think, is very different than other sober living houses or treatment centers. Um, talk about how you journeyed into this way of helping people. I think um, the way that I got into this was, is you know, after being, I came up, Rebos, by the way, is sober spelled backwards. I hated the word sober. Um, and <laughs> so back in the day, my, um, when I got sober the last time, my counselor was like, I don't, he's like, I told my counselor, his name was Keith. I said, Keith, I do not want to be sober. That word just sounds like the driest, boringest thing. He goes, I don't care what you call it, but you need to be this because you are out of your mind. So I was actually just kind of being a smart aleck when I came up with it. Um, so that's how I came up with the, that name. A lot of people don't even, they're like, what the hell does that mean? Um, so there actually is a reason behind it. The way that I came up with the way that we do treatment and we do do treatment differently is you have 12 step places and you have non 12 step places out in the industry. And I have been to all of them. I've been to the highest end places in Malibu and I've been to the lowest end places around in the country. And none of these places were, were hitting the nail on the head for me. They all had good aspects and they all had bad aspects. And so when I got sober, I was actually in treatment. When, when I was getting sober, I was in treatment. And like most people that are in treatment, I was like, I can do this better. So I literally drew a line down a piece of paper and I wrote the positives and the negatives of every treatment center that I've ever been to. Um, and I just came up with a list. And what, what came to mind was is everybody is so adamant about you know, when you get into a treatment center, I'm going to do 12 step or it has to be 12 step or it, I need non 12 step. To me, it was wrong information because there are so many people that have such a wrong idea of what 12 step actually is. And there's people that have a wrong idea of what non 12 step actually is. There's no difference. In my opinion, what the biggest difference the biggest difference that I find with any of this stuff is people are putting the cart before the horse. I remember when I went to treatment for every single one of my times, I walked in the door, I had to pee in a cup for a drug test. You do an intake and they hand you a bunch of books, whether it's 12 step oh, or non 12 step. And realistically, I am on the, I'm on, I'm on a cliff ledge, barely holding on by my tiptoes and they're handing me books they aren't asking me, how you doing? What's going on? Mm. I, when people come into treatment, they are not emotionally sober enough, emotionally mature enough to even comprehend the difference. There has to be first aid that goes on first. You have to bring these people down to earth. You, and that could take a day. That could take 30 days. Everybody's always different. And so what happens is, is people get into treatment and they get spooked. 
they totally get spooked and they run or they close down. Oh, I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear about this. So I need, I think I need non 12 stuff. Then they get into non 12 stuff. And they're like, there's nothing going on here. This is stupid or this. They get these preconceived ideas of what's actually going on. There has to be groundwork done before you can start laying pavement. And that is one thing that treatment centers do not do in this world. They don't. I've never seen an industry that, and I'm on like a mission right now for this. This is a life-threatening disease that is going on. We lose, depending on the statistic that you read and who is paying for this statistic, we lose between 150 and 350 people per day to either a drug or an alcohol-related death. So that's overdoses, DUIs, you name it, okay? So let's just call it 200, just, you know, 2 to 250 in there, which is still a crazy amount for this country. And our success rating, or let's put it this way, our failure rate for treatment is 95%. That is our failure rate. And in the overall census of treatment in this country, it doesn't matter if you are a billionaire athlete or if you are literally living on stamps. It does not matter. There's a 95% failure rate. This disease of addiction that was, you know, made up, you know, back in the 50s has not changed the way that we treat it in that amount of time, which is appalling Mm. to me. It's absolutely appalling. And, and Ross, I was talking to this gentleman who, um, he also has a sober living um, house in Malibu and in Texas, and he was saying that he was in the boxing industry, he was in the set, the car sales industry, he was in the movie industry, and the, and the worst industry that he's ever been in was treatment center, was drug abuse industry, because so many people take advantage of that like who is who's paying for those reports that are going out about you know drugs who is aiding and abetting into you know this heroin epidemic and you know having all these kids you know going after heroin heroin and you know getting addicted like watching the inauguration um last thursday and donald trump saying that you know he's going to rid the United States of, you know, drug, drugs, that's great. But to me, it wasn't realistic. I mean, it's like, how, how can you make this industry like clean? Or do you, do you understand what I'm saying, Ross? I mean, you said a lot there. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you make the industry clean? That's one conversation. How do you get rid of drugs? That's another conversation. That, uh, um, I, know. I mean, there is so much. Yeah, you're right. What you just said there, that uh, of frustration, you just nailed it. <laughs> That's just, this is what I deal with on a daily basis. I've got to deal with, I've got prettiest girls you ever seen in your life blowing their brains out. I've got, Guys that are so smart, very handsome, just destroying their lives. Um, you've got society in general that is has this ill will towards addiction on any level, and people act like it's this person's fault when every single family is is affected by this, just like cancer. Yep. And it's probably mm-hmm. you got probably got more people in your family addicted to drugs or alcohol than you do that are affected by cancer. 
And you know what? It is such. It's just. It's there is no. It's just like a lot of things. There is just no organization. There is no good education on it, and there is no good battle plan. This is not like come. This is a battle. This literally is a battle, and it's an epidemic. And you remember how I said at the beginning of how we were talking a little while ago, you said, Ross, how'd you get the money to get these drugs? And I mm-hmm. said, I said, well, we had jobs. Or, you know, you just steal booze from your parents' liquor cabinet. I'll kid you not. Most kids that I get now, their first thing is not a hit of weed or a drop of alcohol. You know what their first thing is? They go to their parents' medicine cabinet, and they're stealing their parents' drugs. Because they have all these drugs that are given to them by the family doctor. You know how you get rid of drug abuse? You actually educate doctors on what it is. These doctors, they don't understand. You look at the doctors in sports because, you know, that's what you really deal with. And, And you go to the doctors that are in just regular, you know, just regular, like my world type. I, I call myself a muggle. Uh, it's like Harry Potter. You're, I'm a non-wizard. I'm a non-athlete. I'm a muggle. And um, what it is is they there's a problem, so you diagnose and prescribe. It's literally like a textbook is wide open, and on one side you have a problem, and on the other side is the solution. That's the drug, and there's literally a dotted line over there. And in the middle of that dotted line, it doesn't tell you all the all the the chaos and the destruction that is potentially able to happen from this or the time frame you should be on this painkiller or this mm-hmm. or this um this upper or this antidepressant or this um or the ADD drug or whatever it is all this stuff has all this stuff has a time uh, time span on it all of it mm-hmm. there is nothing in this world that does not have a, a lifespan on it and you have to up it so that's what it is so it's like how do you get rid of these drugs well, what drug are we talking about first? We can get rid of the pain pills or, or the prescription drugs in general. That's one conversation. How do you get rid of heroin? Well, we got to go over. We got to go, you know, over the seas where these wars are being uh, fought, and I mean, it's just it's never well, ending. And then you look at the biggest one: alcohol, cigarettes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, cigarettes are harder to quit than crack cocaine. You can ask any person that's done them both; they'll tell you. Nicotine is the worst. Right. So, Ross, in getting into the sober living in, in, in Rebos, sober backwards, and you deal with so many men and women, women, but also mental health issues, how do the two correlate? Like if you're using drugs, but then you have a mental health issue, or is it you use drugs and get a mental health issue that you have to deal with? Because um, what I, I heard something about, like, if you're an alcoholic, you can get, like, wet brain, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, just basically your pickle. That's just you are oversaturated, uh, wet brain is. It's just, as I like to say, it's, you know, you're pickled. You are just, you're like a sponge. It's just, it's, the sponge cannot sponge up anything else. It is just permanently wet. Um, it's just, that's what it is. Uh, but that's not really mental. I mean, that can create mental health issues because your brain is uh-huh. not functioning. But mental health is, you're talking about depression. You're talking about anxieties. Um, now, everybody has depression and everybody gets anxiety over certain, certain things. The biggest key is clinically depressed or clinically um, you, have, you're, you have anxiety or you're clinically uh-huh. ADD. 
or you're clinically bipolar. Most people, and it's just like anything else, they are given drugs immediately upon. My favorite story is to deal with mental health is when I went to treatment for my first time, I was in treatment for, I think, eight hours. And I went and met with the psychiatrist and my psychiatrist at the treatment center I went to. And this is one of the most biggest treatment centers in the country. It's, I call it the mothership. And wow. the psychiatrist, yeah, I call it the mothership. And I go in there and the guy says to me, I've been there six or eight hours. And I've, I'm in there for doing cocaine, drinking too much Budweiser. And I was in there for cocaine. And he goes to me, how he goes, how you doing? I go, I'm pretty sad. Um, he goes, okay. And he goes, how you feeling? I'm like, I'm absolutely exhausted. And I haven't slept in a few days. And he goes, okay. He goes, hi, you pretty anxious? I'm like, yeah, I can't stop shaking. I'm just, I'm like, I'm so, I'm just, ugh. And he goes, okay. He wrote me a prescription for three drugs. He gave okay. me a mood stabilizer. He gave me a sleep med. And he gave me another daytime mood, um, um, daytime mood uh, stabilizer. What he did was is he diagnosed me clinically depressed, and he diagnosed me with a sleep disorder. And I'd been there for eight hours when really I just had an intervention done, so I was furious and I was embarrassed. Um, I had my drugs taken away from me. Um, I hadn't slept in three days because I'd been doing cocaine for three days, <laughs> so I was tired. <laughs> And wow. he diagnosed me clinically depressed and, uh, and a sleep problem when, no, I was having a reaction to just having an intervention done. I just ended up at a rehab with no clothes. So all the clothes that I had said the name of the rehab on it. Um, yeah, I was depressed. But was I clinically depressed? It's like saying you're clinically depressed after your dog dies. Like but, an but hour after your dog you, dies. But did you know, like, what to say? No. Like, cause I had no I know. idea. I just like this doctor is like, oh. here you go. So that is one of the biggest things that I'm sticking it to this in this industry. And it's just like the 12-step or non-12-step. This industry is broken, is 100% broken. They are giving out drugs. You can go into any doctor's office, almost any doctor's office, and say, you know what? I am depressed, and I don't feel good because my golden retriever named Duke just died, and I'm crushed. They're going to give, they're going to give you some meds, some antidepressants for that. They're not going to, we don't as a society deal with emotion anymore at all. And, and that's what I was talking to my husband about is that like a lot of the people that I, I hear about, you know, doing drugs or being addicted and, you know, their story, they always talk about stealing. And for me growing up, I was able to express myself, and if I didn't express myself, I felt like I was going to die, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. whatever. But, like, my husband, growing up in his family, you know, he was able to manage his emotions in this little, cute little box. But yeah. for me, it was like, I can't understand why people aren't, you know, feeling anything. So if you put, you know, me on you know, antidepressant, and then you're like, oh, my God, I cannot feel anything. This is horrible. But a lot of people go around feeling that they don't want to feel anxiety. They don't want to feel like they're being, you know, neglected or whatever. And then they, therefore, they turn to drugs or alcohol to hide those feelings. Is, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, nobody deals with anything organic anymore. You know, it's... It's one of those things that's like you should be able to cry and you should be able to be happy and you should be able to deal with the ups and the downs. It's like there's some days 
that are going to be just sunshine and there's some days it's going to be rainy. It's, and you know what? That's fine. And people just want it to be one way all the time. And it, it can't be. And it's, you know what? It's okay to have a raw emotion. My mom died a little over a year ago. And it was one of those times that I was so scared. Me just being an ex-addict and alcoholic, I'd always been worried about when the day my mom dies, I'm going to be so nervous that I'm going to want to medicate myself to numb myself mm-hmm. out. And I'll tell you what, one of the coolest things that I had from it was just crying. And then just all of a sudden switching over to laughter at just the quirky, stupid things my mom would do. And then just put, then you go back to crying. And I went on like that for about a month. <laughs> it was just kind of, you're a little bit of a mess, or, or a lot of yes. bit of a mess. <laughs> but yes. at the end of the day, it's like, you know what? Somebody's going to give you the finger as you're driving to work someday. How are you going to deal with that? You know, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with, you know what? Your husband, your wife, your kid is going to drive you nuts someday. It's, you just got to, you have to know how to deal with your emotions, the ups and the downs. It's just like money. How are you going to deal with when, you know, your pay, when you, when you have to get it, when your paycheck gets trimmed a little bit, you have to adapt to it. Do you all of a sudden have to go like, you just adapt to how life is. Either get another job or you have to deal with it in a certain way uh, mentally and emotionally. It's There's nothing different. But everybody wants a quick fix. Everybody wants to stay level all the time. And truth of the matter, it's not natural. It's not mm-hmm. natural. And it's so important that people understand that. It's not natural, and everybody's looking for, you know, I need this type of medicine to be a better athlete. You know, I need this. Mm-hmm. I need these supplements to be this guy. I need um, I need to, uh, you know, have this supplement to be better, or I need, um, mm-hmm. I need this alcohol to be able to have this, uh, to dance on top of this bar. <laughs> like, I need this in order to be this, and I need this. We all have to have something else in order to have something else. And it's not right. normal. And back in the days, it was, I guess there was always a level of that. You know, you have to have this size house to have this type of status, you know, like status in your community. You have to have this type of car. We are so reliant on other things to bring our joy, to bring our status, to bring our happiness, whatever it is. And nobody's just, nobody's like, nobody's organic anymore about who they are. And that really separates the people that are going to last a long time and not last a long time. The shallow people from the, from the, from the deep people. So, Ross, with your, with your company, Rebos, you wrote down on one side of the paper about treatment centers that did good and what about treatment centers you didn't like. What have you incorporated into Rebos that makes you different from the rest? Um. The biggest thing that I've incorporated that makes us different from the rest is kind of what I said earlier. Upon admission, you are treated differently. You know, it's not about what we believe gets you sober. We, we diagnose you as an individual. You know, whether you're a 22-year-old girl or you're a 55-year-old man, you're different. And so upon admission, it's not how I'm going to get you sober. It's how I'm going to get you sober by looking at who you are and what actually makes you tick. You know, the way that, you know, if you and I both walked into treatment together, 
they would they would treat us differently, you know, at Rebos. It's just because you have a different background than I do. You're going to have different circumstances than I do. We might drink the same alcohol or do the same drug, but all the rest of it, the fuel that that fires us to want to drink and want to do drugs is different. You know, mm-hmm. there's a reason why, you know, there's all different types of cancer. There's, you know, and there's reasons why you get those different types of cancer. You can't treat them all the exact same. And the biggest thing that people don't do in this industry is they, they've been doing the same thing since the 50s. They're treating everybody the exact same. And now, just now, we're on the tip of it of really seeing that there is difference. So not only are you trying to get somebody off of drugs and alcohol, but my biggest goal is to keep people active in their recovery and active in their new life and realizing that just like everything else in this world, you have to stay with it for the rest of your life. You're going to always have to paint your house. You're always going to have to get an oil change on your car. You're always going to have to check in with some sort of coach, some sort of mentor. Maybe it's your priest. You know, back in the day, everybody used to talk to the priests about their problems. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> there's coaches. There's mentors. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep that up. And if something's not right, like, very, be interested in how your body works and how your head works. So we really teach people on how that is. And then we kind of let them under the hood that this is what's going on with you, and this is why you got bit. Most people now, you know, I'd say not most, but I'd say at least 50% of them, they're not like your run-of-the-mill old-fashioned drug addicts. They got bit by accident. They blew out their back, and they got on some pain pills that they had to be on. And they just, like a regular house mom, you know, just like a country club house mom. She's not a heroin addict. It's just not her gig. But she blew at her back. She blew at her knee skiing, like something just totally stupid. And she just got addicted. I mean, that happens. Mm -hmm. But she's being treated like a good old-fashioned drug addict, and that's not correct. That's not correct. It scares more people than it attracts. Mm -hmm. So that's how we do it differently. You walk into any other place, you are put into a big group, and you're treated just like an 18-year-old would be treated the same way as a 72-year-old. Not Rebos. Rebos is all individual counseling, one-on-one counseling. That's what makes us different. You're, every single client that comes into our place, they get a six-person team that works with them. They get their own psychotherapist. They get their own case manager, their own spiritual counselor, their own, their own chemical dependency counselor, biofeedback, and also um, a doctor, a psychiatrist that deals with them specifically. You get a team of people that have a team of specialists that hover around you to help you out, just like you would at any other disease. Mm-hmm. That helps you with every how to get through everything. This just isn't a chemical, you know, dependency issue. This is psychological. This is spiritual. This is chemical dependency. This is this is everything. And people Russ, don't do that do you, anymore. What do you do when you have clients that? don't have the willingness to, you know, go through all of the counselors and the team, and they don't have the willingness to become sober. Most people that come into us, they they don't have the – well, there's a difference. The willingness to get sober can go a couple different ways. There's the willingness – like, I couldn't imagine – I always wanted to get sober, but I could not imagine going through my life without cocaine or alcohol in it. So you have to ask yourself, is this person really want to like get sober in the sense of like, like, are they still having fun? 
Now, I wasn't having any fun anymore, but I still couldn't imagine, like, how do I talk to a girl without an eight ball of cocaine in my pocket? How do I talk to a girl without going, hey, can I buy you a drink? So what we tried to point out to people is, you know, you're going to weed out people that are just like, they just don't, they're just not ready. They just don't want to be in this level yet. Then there's the people that can't imagine themselves not having a drink with them. They can't imagine not going to their wedding without champagne or watching a sunset without a glass of wine or going to a football game without a beer and a brat. You know, you, that's a different type of a thing, and that's where you have to educate them. And that's where, like, proven evidence, where it's like you do one thing at a time, and you need to kind of, like, have them experience things one at a time because their old ways, their old thought will creep in. So you work with them. This isn't a light switch. You don't flip it on and go, okay, you know, snap, you're all better. It's like a dimmer switch, and you slowly turn it on, and that person has to put effort into it. And you could show them all the pluses and all the minuses, but at the end of the day, it's how they're going to really be smart and really put themselves in the right way. A newly sober person that's in the first couple months should not be going to the belly of the beast during the holiday season back to their family's house. You know, it's just not a good idea. You know, just and be right. smart about those type of situations. I was uh, watching the documentary on uh, DJ AM and, you know, he did this show on sobriety. I guess it was for MTV or something. And then he went yeah. into this place uh, with the the cops ha- had laid out all these drugs that they got. And DJ AM was like, I got to get out of here. This isn't good. And he was at yeah. that time, 11, yeah. 11 years sober. Yeah. And he was saying that every, Every day is a fight to not grab that pipe. It's like yeah. when you're an addict and you come in and thinking, well, okay, this guy is already 11 years sober and he's still fighting it. Yes. Does it get any easier, Ross? A hundred percent. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I wasn't even thinking that, but that's a, that's a heck of a point. You know, at a, I'm coming on 10 years sober and I don't think about drugs or alcohol at all anymore. I think about what I don't want to be during the day and I don't want to be negative and I, and I always want to be positive and I want to stay in shape and so on and so forth. But the fact that he would say something like that, and I saw that documentary, it was a while ago, but I did, I did see it. That just shows that it's like, it's just kind of like somebody doing, um, it's like somebody that's trying to like do like keeps painting a house with water damage. You know, you can't just continue to paint over that water damage and not expect it to bubble up. You're going to have to break open that wall, go in there, and replace that pipe. You're going to have to do that. He had underlying issues that were still bubbling over. And he couldn't, like, you know, keep up a, a good stage front too long. He was getting, you know, all bubbled up. Now, granted, I don't want to go into a crack house and look at a crack pipe all day. It's going to make me itch, you know, but I haven't, I can't remember a day when I was like, I want to drink and I want to do drugs. I just, I don't have that anymore, you know, because my underlying issues, I not only have I cleared them out, but I'm also maintaining on a daily basis, making sure my internal spiritual plumbing and emotional plumbing is high and tight. That is so Mm -hmm. key. And so when I hear people that do that, that's what it is. It's underlying issues. There's a reason why you do what you do. Now, the flip side of that, you know, in the beginning, people are going to have cravings. It's just like weight loss or if you're not yeah, weight loss or if you're trying to get in shape just because you're going to the gym every day. And just because you're going and buying those $100 heads of lettuce at Whole Food and you're eating organic and well, that does not mean cheeseburgers and 31 flavors will not sound like a good idea and not taste. And still, you could still remember the taste. 
Just because you mm-hmm. want to quit drinking doesn't mean the taste of Budweiser or whiskey or whatever it is, it all of a sudden it sounds like a bad idea. I mean, it's been almost 10 years for me. I know what I remember what cocaine tastes like still. I remember what weed tastes like. I remember what alcohol tastes like, you know. And, yeah, I do like that, but it's but I know it's like I don't drink that. You know, it's like there's certain foods. I just, just don't have it anymore because, you know, the next day is a little brutal. It tastes good going in, but it's not a good time mm-hmm. going out. Right. It's the same kind of factor. But a lot of people, they call them dry drunks, and that's kind of what DJ AM was. I didn't know him personally. I've seen his that documentary, so I'm stepping lightly as I say this because I, I didn't know him personally. I can only go by those little sound clips. But to me, right. it would just sound like somebody's underlying issues weren't dealt with completely. And if they were dealt with um, in the beginning, they bubbled up again. That's how it is. You know, your marriage can go bad if you don't stay on it every day. Your dog can unlearn, you know, how to sit, how to stay, unless you stay, you know, on it. You can lose 20 pounds and gain it back. You always have to be on it. So what about the the family members? I know you talk about how, you know, drug addiction, it doesn't only affect you as the athlete or the mom or the dad, it affects everyone that is around you. I want to, um, when I first moved, well, just to give you a little bit of background. So I had alcoholics in my family, but I didn't know I had alcoholics in my family until I was like in my thirties. It was like Uh that. It was like, (laughs) it was, I guess, what it was hidden from me. I didn't know. I didn't know what it meant to have someone who, tried to keep their family a member member alive every day, um, trying to stop them from drinking, you know, and what effect that had on their brain. Yeah. So how do you how do you approach that? Like being someone that may have an alcoholic around them that may feel, you know, powerless to help the other person. You know, you don't you're uneducated. You know, a lot of people don't realize like it's amazing what people find to be normal in their house and in their life. You know, it's normal that my dad just beats the living tar out of me, or my mom does this, or my mom basically, I have to live my mom's life, you know, or whatever it is. It's amazing what we as a society become or adapt is just normal. That's just normal. That's how I grew up. And in, in a lot of people, like in your 30s, like as you just said, they realize what's right and what's wrong or what's, they might not even know what's right or wrong. They just go, something that just is off <laughs> for yeah. the most part, right? you know? And I, I think it's to find out if somebody's an alcoholic or not. I mean, it really comes down to, you know, what, how much are they, I mean, are they just drinking for every single reason um, on the planet? It's like, there's people, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a long-winded answer to give you of what it can be, but you know in your gut when something is not right. You just know it. You, just because you've seen it for 20 years, 30 years, that still doesn't mean you you wouldn't have something in your gut, like deep in your gut that's just not right. And, hey, if you've got a question about it, you know, in this day and age, you can Google it you, and find your way to an Al-Anon meeting and see if other people are, are thinking and talking the way that you are. And I'm sure that's what happened to you. You started hearing people that were thinking the same way you were thinking, correct? But it, uh, also talking with parents that kids are drug addicts or alcoholics and their feeling of hopeless or, you know, we put my child into, you know, this sober living house and this place and nothing has worked. and you just like, you know, how can you give up on your son or daughter 
when they don't even have the willingness to, I guess, they don't have the willingness to, to, to yeah. be better. Well, you know, that's the biggest component of what needs to go on in, in treatment in general, the family component. When you have, whether you have a son or a daughter or a husband or wife or best friend, the people that aren't in treatment need to, you know, depending on what your involvement is with that loved one, they need to either be very involved with their treatment or they have to come up with their boundaries. My family came up with a boundary for me. I was not allowed home ever again in the condition that wow. I was in, pure and simple. Yeah. You know, it's not that they didn't love me, but they were like, mm-hmm. you can't come to our house and trash it. I mean, let's take away drugs. Let's take away alcohol. Let's pretend you had a son that came home and just, you know, kicked the cat every time it came in or spray painted your walls. Like, are you going to allow them to just to come in whenever they want to? No, you're going to be like, no, you cannot do this in our house. The same way with drugs, the same way with alcohol. You have to be, you know what, there's a right and there's a wrong way to do this stuff. And it's hard because a lot of, a lot of kids, they get really confused because what goes on is they're watching their mom and their dad. They're still drinking and they're still doing drugs and they're asking their kid not to do it. And it's like, this is when it becomes a family issue. So there's families like mine where they didn't drink and they didn't do drugs. And I was, they're like, we don't do this here. You are the odd man out. And not only are you the odd man out, you cannot even do this like an adult. You are nuts. Wow. Um, but then there's the people that are like, everybody drinks and everybody's doing drugs. But you know what? You're kind of the bad apple. You take it that one step too far. So, you know, you can't do it. But we're going to continue doing what we're doing. That doesn't add up. That that's right. that's not cool. You know, this is when it becomes a family issue. They really got to understand what's what's going on here. You can't, you know, do as I say, but you know that that whole thing. It's it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, and then that's where a lot of families get into fights. They're like, "What's going on here? You're yeah. telling me to do it, but I'm just doing the same thing that you're doing." Families don't are, are not walking together enough. Now, uh, Ross, since you have uh, Rebos and you deal with a lot of the insurance companies, are you able to talk about some of the things that may be coming down the pipeline in regards to insurance? You know what? I'm not that concerned right now. Um, I don't see I, – I think the, the current – I think the idea of what you know, Obamacare was I think is brilliant, the idea of it. Everybody can have insurance and everybody can have, you know, pre-existing conditions. You know, whether you have drug addiction or AIDS or cancer or whatever it is, you will get insurance and you can have the plan that you want to have and this and that. The whole thing blew up in, in everybody's face, totally blew up. So on two different levels, from a business level for me, it totally blew up because I literally cannot do treatment the way I, that I need to get it done that I could a year ago or two years ago. Because this this whole thing is is was not planned out well enough that now insurance companies they don't reimburse the way they used to reimburse. So that means I have to cut my staff and I have to cut the amount of treatment that I need to be doing with clients. That's not because I'm being a, you know I'm being chintzy with how much money I want to make. It's because of what it's being dealt to me. I'm, I I play the cards that are dealt to me. Um, so it's very difficult. What's going to go on with Trump, whether, you know, he wants to re- repeal and replace this whole thing. First of all, nobody's heard a damn thing yet. 
uh, on this at mm-hmm. all. So everybody needs to like calm down a little bit. And there are way too many people that have insurance right now. And him having an alcoholic in his family is a huge deal for us. His brother is an um, has died from alcoholism. He's got he's got a he's got a little soft spot in his heart for that, I believe. But there are too many people. There's 20 million people that have this insurance now. I'm hoping that they re- they repeal it, and I hope they replace it with something that is for the long term, that it's going to last it because right now, this isn't long term. This is a really – this looks really pretty on the outside, but on the inside, deductibles are through the roof. My insurance last year in California went up 32%, 32% in one year. And the actual, my coverage just got plummeted. That's why I had to bring in insurance. That was when I had private insurance. Now I have it through my company. And now it makes more sense. But as a private citizen, we're at 32%. Other states are going up upwards of 60%. People can't afford it. Deductibles are not. It's doing every single thing. Yeah, great. You have an insurance card. You have technically, quote unquote, insurance. But you can't even use it because your deductible is ten grand, and you don't. Even, and you're saving two hundred dollars a month. You don't even have ten grand to pay the deductible, which nobody can even help you with treatments or any other thing because you have you have to pay your deductible first. So yeah, it's great. All these people have technically they do have insurance, but do you really? You can't even use it. You know how many people I turn down a week because they can't pay their deductibles because they keep going through the roof? It's ridiculous. So I hope I hope it gets replaced, and I hope it gets replaced with what's feasible and sustaining for the long term. I know that there is no clear cut, and I know President Obama was talking about if you have another idea, that's great. I want you to bring in something, you know, better, something, you know, that can help all of us, help us as Americans. But having people that can come in with no insurance, um, like coming to our treatment center with no insurance? It, right. Isn't that financially speaking, financially, isn't that more of a hardship on you as an employer and uh, a person that helps, you know, people? Isn't that more of a burden on you than 32% rise in your insurance? I, I'm, I don't know. I'm. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different thing. I mean, you know, I always try to give back every month. I, I try to I try to literally scholarship people, you know, that just can't afford anything. You know, they just because a lot of insurance companies, what happens now is they'll have insurance that they can pay for it. But if you've been through more than X amount of treatments per year, they won't let you get any more treatment. So that's another thing that, you, that we didn't even cover but we're, and we can get to. It's like if you have five heart attacks, you can keep getting covered with insurance. If you go through three or more give or take treatments per year. You, oh they can cut you off and say, you know what, you should have it by now. I've had a girl with three suicide attempts in one month. In one month, she mm-hmm. was denied mental health um, coverage. But um, I don't know if I really understand your your question. If your if your insurance goes up thirty thirty some odd percent, you know, in one year, I mean that takes well, you know your p- price per month. You can't afford it. You have to quit it. And then you're going to have to go down to a Medicare level. And Medicare level means you can only go to certain type of hospitals and certain type of treatment centers. And the bottom line is, is you get what $125 a day in treatment will give you when that's just, it's like, what is $125 a day worth of cancer treatment worth any type of treatment work? Um, but it, 
other than that, isn't it like you can't even put a, a day or a limit on what treatment each person needs? You can't do anything. Like, like if you say, okay, you're here, you get to be here for two weeks, but that person may need a year or six months or a year. You know what I mean? It takes a month just for a client and their treatment team to get kind of in sync with each other, to get that trust, to get that like mutual respect, to get that education of, oh, this is where we're going. And nine times out of 10, I'm getting clients pulled from me by the insurance company. Oh, they should have it by now. It's like, this person hasn't slept in like five years. They've been, they're literally 60 pounds below weight. They have no family, they have no job. They just got done with detoxing three weeks ago, and now this is their fifth week, so they've been really sober for two weeks. Now they should have it and should have a job. It's like there is no, I mean, it takes for like mental health just to get medication straight, like what works with their body and what doesn't. That alone takes weeks of ups and downs, but they're not. Sometimes they're, years. They're, yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, this is not easy and they're asking us to perform miracles like this is a light switch you know what they're like well does the client want to get better it's like no that's 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 what drugs are drugs tell the person that they don't want to be better i mean that's what we're working against it's a mind game you know there's something in them that tells them that they can't do this stuff so it's pretty um it's pretty ridiculous it's pretty ridiculous. It's we are in a losing battle, and we're doing the best that we can with what we got. It really is, so, and it's turning into a total just like a triage station and not an operation. That's disheartening. Mm-hmm. What um, it is. So what what would you say to anyone that's listening that may have an addiction or or a mother or father that is trying to help their their kids, you know, be sober? What what kind of advice can you give them? My biggest advice for them is don't give up on them. Make sure you're you're keeping yourself protected and um, keep yourself protected from them. And in the sense of have a boundary, you know, know what's right or wrong. You know, there's a certain amount of boundaries that we need in this world in order to, uh, you know, to maintain our personal sanities. Always have a heart. You know, some days you're going to have to make decisions that you're not going to have that you're not going to want to make um, to help that person. Letting go doesn't mean you don't love that person. Um, you can't drive yourself nuts with it. There are places to help. Uh, you know, no matter what price range you're looking for, um, it's not going to take a month. It's going to be a year for everybody. It takes a year to move around this freight train um, that people are going through. That's the biggest thing. Don't lose hope. Get yourself, if you're a family member, to an Al-Anon meeting. Get yourself to your own therapy sessions um, to know on how to deal with your loved one the best possible way. Always remember that that your loved one's old self is still in there. Their soul is not gone. It's so important. They're not acting like themselves, but their soul is not gone. It's just like any other disease. They don't look like themselves after they've been through all that chemo and all that, but they're still in there. They're still in there. So, I don't know, I, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing, and I see a lot of people have to walk away when they have to walk away, and that's, that's one of the sad things. But there's enough out there, and, you know, I'm always around to answer any questions for people, and people can find out about Rebos. They can go to Rebos, R-E-B-O-S, treatment.com. You can see what we do. If we're not the place for you, 
I've got a list of places all over the country and even in my, in our own backyard here in LA that would work for you. We're not, we're not perfect for everybody. We're just not, um, just like any other situation. Um, but I don't you guys are definitely good. doing a, a, a great job and you guys have a great team and I appreciate your sharing your experience. Thank you for saving lives every day. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And that's uh, Rebos, which is sober backwards, RebosTreatment.com. Ross Ramin, CEO and founder of Rebos Treatment, and also uh, you do a radio show as well. How can people listen to you as well? Yeah, well, I'm on uh, VoiceAmerica.com every Tuesday morning at 9, p- 9 a.m. Pacific time. Um, you can also find me on iTunes at Ross Ramin. Um, you can see past episodes going on. Our website, RebosTreatment.com, also has a link um, to the radio show. Um, so you can catch it live every Tuesday morning um, at 9 a.m., or you can go into iTunes and find the podcast later. Excellent. Thank you so much, CEO and founder of Rebos Treatment Center, Ross Ramin. I'm Laferne Cusack. Thank you so much for joining me. For more information, please log on to ESPNLA.com or check me out on Twitter. Thanks again. I'll see you next week here on ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.